Welcome back to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. And this week, I have a special episode today. I'm having two episodes this week instead of just one because on this episode, I am bringing to you co-executive producer of Penny Dreadful, Chris King. Penny Dreadful was an amazing horror series on Showtime that ran for three seasons. The show's final episode was broadcast over the summer, much to the dismay of diehard fans of the series. Well, I have some good news. Chris is taking up the mantle and is the author of a new series being published by Titan Comics' Penny Dreadful, The Awakening. The Awakening is going to follow the ongoing adventures and exploits of the characters from the original Penny Dreadful series, so fear not, your favorite characters are back. In comic book form, beautifully illustrated and true to the continuity of the original series. I won't get into any details about the comic book, which just came out on April 5th, which is why I added this bonus podcast this week. Now, if you have any trepidation about listening to this podcast for fear of spoilers, we are not going to discuss any details or spoilers about the Penny Dreadful series that was on Showtime and is now playing on Netflix. So if you haven't watched it yet, don't worry. We won't get into any details that would spoil the experience for you. So whether you've already seen this series or have thought about watching this series, there'll be plenty of information about it to entice you and delight you. And I think especially fans of horror will like this. I highly recommend both the series and the comic, which has art by Jesus Hervez, who worked on Sons of Anarchy, and Hellraiser for Boom Studios, a perfect fit. And so without further ado, my interview with Chris King, co-executive producer of Penny Dreadful, here now on Creator Talks. So Chris, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you for having me. I really look forward to the conversation, and uh, before we get into Penny Dreadful, the series and the book, the comic book series being published by Titan, let's first talk about what the Penny Dreadfuls are, because I found that little tidbit of information, that little bit of history fascinating. Yeah, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, concept of what they were, which in a way it sort of plays into the comic book uh, in such a perfect way, because, you know, back in this sort of Victorian era, uh, Penny Dreadfuls were sort of like the first comic books. Um, they were serialized stories that you could buy for a penny, and they were printed on sort of very, very cheap um, paper. And they were sort of designed and written for the sort of working class uh, people in, you know, of, of England. And they told stories of, you know, vampires and monsters and creatures and killers and, and uh, you know, all of those uh, those great, um, you know, horror and genre type pieces um, that the sort of working class people were really sort of eating up. And um, because, and, and it was sort of something that was very accessible uh, to uh, to the working class people. So in a way, the comic books um, play, you know, the, the comic book theme plays into sort of what the Penny Dreadfuls uh, originally were. And everyone's probably heard of some of the stories. I mean, wasn't Sweeney Todd first published in or as a Penny Dreadful story? Yes, that that is correct. Absolutely. So it was Sweeney Todd, and then one of the first, one of the first vampire stories, Varney the Vampire, um, was also a uh, a Penny Dreadful. So those themes of of monsters and and sort of killers and these sort of darker, more horrific. Uh, themes were were played out in these serialized pieces. I have to be honest, like uh, the whole series of Penny Dreadful, I didn't, I knew about it, I heard of it, but I didn't know what it was about. And I knew that the series had ended and fans were this all upset that it ended so abruptly. Um, and I was honestly on Netflix and I was getting ready to queue up Iron Fist. And you know how you get, they pop up with other shows that you may like. And there was Penny Dreadful. I said, oh, I've heard of that. And I looked at the description, you know, Dr. Frankenstein. I'm like, up, oh, that, sold. That's it. I'm in. I am in. I'm like, honey, I, we're watching this. We're watching this. <laughs> nice. And that was just a couple weeks ago. And it's been like binge. You know, we just going to do the whole thing. Yeah. But, and I found myself watching that, even though I'm a big comic lover, over Iron Fist sometimes. I'm like, let's, let's watch Penny Dreadful tonight. I, I really <laughs> want to see that. <laughs> and it's also kind of ironic that, the characters in Penny Dreadful, they're not 
they're actually the higher end uh, monsters. You I mean you have um, you have Dracula, you have Victor Frankenstein, um, the monster. Uh, you have uh, Dorian Gray, um, mm-hmm. and even um, Doctor Jekyll makes an appearance in the series as well. Yeah, what's I mean, I hear this a lot now, um, especially since the show has ended. That people are really discovering uh, discovering Penny Dreadful via Netflix and any other you know streaming services, and it, the show really was designed to be binged watched. Uh, that kind of was, you know, when I started working with John Logan, who's the writer, creator, producer of the series. Uh, when we first started talking about it, you know, for him, it was like his way of telling a really great novel, like writing the really great novel. And so, you know, each episode was its own chapter, but you're kind of supposed to, you know, read it all together. And so similar to watching the show and binging it and watching it episode by episode, um, because, you know, John wrote all the scripts, which is sort of unheard of. Uh, in television, he wrote all the scripts way before we even started production. So the scripts were, were you know, written together, and which allowed both the, you know, all the artists involved, whether it's the production designers, the directors, the actors, to, you know, really get to read and see where the story was going over the course of for the first season, nine episodes. And uh, so, the, so the fact that, like, you know, the the binge watching era, you know, this show really came out of that, and more people are able to, you know, to to have access to it because of Netflix and other streaming sites, and uh, it, it's it's a really great opportunity for new viewers to, you know, and new fans to be made uh, from that. And on the flip side of things, what you were saying about sort of the higher end monsters, yeah, that that was always sort of the the inspiration for the series. When uh, when John Logan first talked to me about it, and I was lucky to be the first person that he approached uh, in regards to this project to go like, look, is this a series and should we do it? And uh, he, he was always a huge fan of the Hammer horror films. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Hammer horror films, but they were sort of in the, the 50s and 60s, I believe. Oh, yes, um, very much so, so. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, they it first started with the originals from the Universal era in the 30s and 40s, and then, you know, the Hammer horror films sort of brought these monsters back to life, no pun intended. And uh, But what was, what was so intriguing about the Hammer version of them was the fact that they did multiple films where we got to see, say, Dr. Frankenstein, and sort of you saw him in, evolve over the course of uh, multiple films, and so you, you got to see his character arc and see him sort of change um, as the sort of films evolved as well. And so that's sort of what first inspired John to go like, you know, let's see if we can do a similar thing like what they did with Hammer Horror Films, but put it in a t- television series. And let's watch these characters over the course of hopefully multiple seasons sort of change and evolve as circumstances, you know, uh, present themselves. And so that, of course, was so intriguing. And the fact that we could, you know, put Dr. Frankenstein and and the whole Dracula uh, story and mix in Dorian Gray and have all these sort of characters live in the same world... I mean, how could you not say no to it? It's it's amazing and fantastic. So it it truly sort of came. What I like to say is the show came out of out of a creator who was a fan to begin with, and I think that's why the show is so rich and so um, you know really intriguing is because John uh, was a fan of all of those types of movies, and I think that's why he treats it with such respect and with such honor um, to write the series. I have always been a fan of the Universal Horror Films yeah. and the Hammer Horror Films, especially the earlier Hammer Horror Films before they got a little too out there in the 60s and 70s and they started to kind of fade a bit. But those yeah. original ones mm-hmm. with uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, uh, the Frankenstein, um, yep. the Curse of Frankenstein, uh, the Evil of Frankenstein, uh, the Horror of Dracula, and uh, the Mummy, mm-hmm. uh, which I'll bring up again later. Uh <laughs> Mm-hmm. They they were among my favorites, and I love to watch those. And my wife's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I I, I want to watch this." So that they're great. I mean, look at the color and the acting, uh-huh. and they take it seriously. It's like gothic horror. There's yeah. so much there. Yeah, it's, it's it's. I could watch them again and again and again. It's like reading a story at bedtime. You know, you you know what the story is, but you still just want to read that story because you love to see it over and over again. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Penny Dreadful, like binge watching it as a, like a book, reading like watching one after another. 
makes a lot more sense. It made a lot more sense for me because I would say, well, geez, like, why is Dorian Gray there? Like, what's his connection to all this? Because he's having a great time, apparently, but I don't know why he's there. And then you see further on when you get through seasons one and two, all these threads start coming together, all these connections, how everyone's connected, especially how they all tie in to the the central character Vanessa Ives. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what what was great about it is when we like for example in season 1 we get to meet uh Brona Croft who becomes Ethan Chandler's love interest played by Billy Piper, the amazing Billy Piper. And you know all along when when John and I were talking about this project, John always knew that that character wasn't going to stay Brona for very long and ultimately she will become the bride of Frankenstein over the course of uh you know the the three seasons. And so when Billy first when we first approached her and we're talking to her about the the character, you know, we had to say, look, okay, Brona's the character now and enjoy her because this is all, the only season you're really going to get to play her. And then when we told her what was going to happen, I mean, of course, as an actor, Billy was like amazed that she gets to portray the Bride of Frankenstein. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was all like the intentions as the, the show goes along were always sort of placed and always known ahead of time. We always knew that, uh, that Dorian would somehow eventually get involved with, with Lily, uh, a.k.a. the Bride of Frankenstein, and that, you know, all of those sorts of elements that we would tease into the first season eventually would sort of filter through. Like, you know, Helen McCrory, who played uh, Madame Kali in the, in the seance episode, uh, which is of the first season, the second episode of season one, you know, it was a very small role, but we always knew her character was going to be a big, the big villain, the big bad in season two. So when John approached uh, Helen, he said, look, tr- just trust me, you know, this, this first episode is going to be a lot of fun, but it's really only going to be like a couple of scenes, but your character will come back and then will be a force to be reckoned with. And that's why, you know, she signed on in season one, you know, with this small role that then eventually turned into a lead role in the, in the second season. One of the most impactful episodes early on for me was when Victor Frankenstein just came back with his latest creation after having a nice day out, walking around, seeing people, meeting people, and he's talking to him, and then something horrible happens to him. Mm-hmm. And when it happens, I'm like, what? Oh, I didn't know what was going on. My brain just couldn't like comprehend what is coming out or going through what. And it was like a brilliant, brilliant shot. I and mean, it was just so well done. I was like, that's genius. I was just blown away by it because I just, my mind could not process it. I was so shocked. And that and that scene evolved from two brilliant creative minds, and that was, you know, John Logan's script, and then Juan Antonio Bayona, who was our director for the first two episodes of the first season. Um, in the script, and this is a little, there was a character appears, so we won't we won't spoil it too much for those who haven't seen the film, or sorry, the series, but uh, a character sort of appears out of nowhere. And in the script, he was supposed to drop from the ceiling, sort of, you know, come crashing through. And uh, it was Bayona whose idea was, you know, no, let's have it even more dramatic and more gothic and more horrific and have him basically rip through another character's sort of body uh, and sort of pull himself through it. And uh, and so that's sort of the, the, the brilliance that is, you know, Juan Antonio Bayona. And uh, and then, of course, the minute we heard it, you know, both John and I looked at each other and were like, yes, that's amazing. So um, but the idea was always to shock the audience because the audience is thinking one thing. Here's the audience thinking that, uh, you know, Dr. Victor Frankenstein has, has created his monster and it's lovely and beautiful. And then, you know, we literally and figuratively rip that apart for him. And that's sort of and, and it was a, an idea that that's what we want the audience to always be on edge. You never know what's going to happen next. You don't know if these characters are going to live and die. And, and we wanted to sort of make it feel like everyone's life is is threatened in some way and no one is safe uh which builds tension and makes for a great uh horror series and the characters themselves um frankenstein's monster victor frankenstein dracula they're all close to the portrayal in the original novels and stories um like dracula is a powerful handsome seductive charming man that uh, seduces Vanessa. Um, Dr. Frankenstein is a tortured soul because of what he's created. And it's amazing to me how 
the monster, his creation, initially when I was watching him in early episodes, I'm like, man, this guy's got some issues. I mean, he is so cruel. I mean, he just wants something to do for him and do for him like his creator, but he's going to torture him into doing it. And like this guy has, I almost want to like him, but I don't. And then by the end of the series, I'm like, wow, you know, I'm just, I can really, I can sympathize. Mm-hmm. I, I feel his pain now. Now he's, now he's more human to me. It's just amazing how he changed how I felt about the character at the beginning versus where he ended up at the end. Mm-hmm. And you hit a great point, and that's sort of the the duality of all these characters is sort of. You know what? What John does so well, and what the series does so well, is balance between what does it mean to be good and, and what does it mean to be evil. And not all good people are good all the time, and not all evil people are evil all the time. You know, it. Everyone is is even these non-human, you know, characters like the creature or like Dracula. There's sympathetic sides to them. You know, what drove them to be who they are, um, you know, what what was in their life, what was in their past that sort of created the people that they've become. And I think that's what makes, you know, one thing's great about television, you have the time to explore that and you have the time to to reveal uh, the, the true nature of these characters. And, you know, for for the creature, for example, you're right, he starts off as this horrific monster. And, you know, always in the script, he was never referred to anything but the creature, although he took names when he worked in the theater and when he had other various jobs. But ultimately, you never really learn his real name. Um, even when you meet his family, you've never, you, we've never uh, given who he was and what the type of person he was. He was always the creature. That was always his name. But what was fascinated by him was, yes, he was monstrous and evil and did horrific things and killed people. But then you you slowly un- start to understand that no that he he's an abandoned child. Doctor Frankenstein abandoned him because when he was first sort of reborn um, and first sort of came back to life, and then he was sort of shunned by the public. No one you know people were cruel to him for the way he appeared and way he looked, and so ultimately he sort of had to he became very closed off and was was forced sort of into the shadows. Um, to live his life that way and ultimately led to him being full of anger and resentment. But then you realize he was a family man and had a wife and a child whom he loved, you know, with all his heart. So, you know, it's, it's such a beautiful story to tell, but it's also a very human story, you know, of the, someone who, you know, based on his circumstances led to turning him into someone evil and monstrous. And I know this series is a, a BAFTA award winner. And I have to say that one episode that just blew me away, and it's one of those episodes where you put down the popcorn, you lean forward. My wife and I both watched it, and we were just like silent. The whole episode was a blade of grass. Mm, yeah. That was some amazing television. I, I, honestly, you just mentioned it, it gives me goosebumps. <laughs> I worked on it, so... <laughs> I mean, it yeah. all takes place in one place, one location, mm-hmm. a very close quarter. And it's very, it's almost like I felt like I was watching an amazing play. A lot of it was just the speaking, the conversation back and forth between these two characters and one trying to show empathy and caring and the other one just rejecting it and just feeling hopelessly lost. And it was it was the best television I would say. I mean, one of my favorite mm. series is Breaking Bad, and I would say like right up there, that episode was like that level of oh my god, this is great television. Yeah, there's there's one. I mean, I'm a huge Breaking Bad fan, and one of my favorite episodes is called The Fly. I don't know if you remember it, but it literally, sort of in the same way, took place sort of down. Uh, you know, in that sort of room where they were where they were making uh, the meth uh, that above was the laundry, where, you know, where they did the laundry and then it was down below. And pretty much the entire episode sort of took place in that room, which was phenomenal and fascinating. And, uh, you know, look, I mean, to be honest with you, it, when John, he, he came, he actually came to me first and was like, I have this brilliant idea. And John being a playwright himself and a Tony Award winner, you know, he understands how to to do a, it's basically a two-hander, you know, you have, occasionally you would have uh, Dr. Stewart played by Patti Laponin, but pretty much it was, a, it was a, a, you know, a two-character piece 
between Vanessa Ives and ultimately we discover it's the creature, but as a as a man. And, you know, to hear the, the first initial pitch of it, um, of course, I was like, well, it sounds crazy and absurd. And we're going to shoot in a, you know, a small white padded room. I'm like, let's do it. You know, like, uh, of course we have to do it. It's so absurd and so crazy. And, and John said it himself. He's like, this is either going to be one of our best episodes or it's going to just completely, you know, tank and no one will get it. And then of course, when the script came in and it was just like the language and the the dialogue and just, and, and then beyond that, the tricky part was finding a, a director who could, you know, create the world of this padded room where it didn't, it felt claustrophobic at times, but also just felt, you know, big and open and had a scope to it for being in such a small space. And uh, we, there was a director that I was obsessed with. His name is Toa Frazier. And he's from New Zealand. And he had done this really amazing um, film in New Zealand that I just was fascinated by. And, uh, um, I, I sort of was always courting him to try to get him to to do uh, do something with us, and um, he came in and he just had this amazing vision for it, and just and could could feel it. And he he's a very sort of like really sweet human being, and although it was a very dark story, he he knew how to pull out the emotion of it, and and the heart of of a, an episode like that. And then you put Roy Kinnear and Ava Green in scenes together, and it's just, it's pure magic anyway. <laughs> just, like, point the camera and let them go. I mean, Ava, that was one of the best pieces of acting I think I've ever seen on television. And, and granted, I know I worked and I was a producer on the show, but even if I just watched it as a viewer, I would have been so amazed by what she was able to do. I mean, there's a scene where she pretty much has, like, the I don't know if you remember, but the sort of gag in her mouth, and, and she can't speak and then he takes it off and pretty much the creature is speaking the whole time but you watch the camera stays on on you know Ava's face and you watch her go through this emotional journey and she says absolutely nothing but you get absolutely everything that she's experiencing it, it was as a as a, just a person watching it on set I mean we were all like sobbing you know when it was being filmed and you couldn't help but get be moved by it and and just a, a you know on a production standpoint we we that episode was its own like a lot of times when you shoot a show especially like Penny Dreadful you do what's called crossboarding so you might shoot two episodes together so one director will shoot two episodes and you kind of go back and forth dependent upon schedules of of actors and and sets and everything you'll shoot a bunch of scenes you know that might be out of sequence whether it's from the first episode or the second that sort of thing but this episode we only it was a standalone so we pretty much just had toa the director and we had a, a its own crew just for that episode um so they became a very much a small little family because you were we were still shooting in a very small space even though we were in a sound stage you know you were still in a very tight quarters and it was very quiet but everyone was it was like the most zen set that's ever I've ever been on I mean everyone was respectful and kind and they became like this tight little family I mean it was kind of a really cool experience to go through uh while filming that episode well not only was it great writing great directing producing the cast that you put together for penny dreadful was just amazing i mean eva green amazing as she, she can look like a a classy attractive victorian woman and then look like the spawn of the devil in the next mm -hmm. scene it's just amazing how she could flip that everyone was fantastic yeah. everyone did like the best job i've ever seen all their careers i mean how you put that cast together it's the magic of hollywood how that can all come together and, and it's such a you know everyone asks because yes the, the cast was phenomenal but i think the luxury of doing a show especially for showtime especially when we knew we were shooting although we were shooting in dublin we used a lot of um actors out of london you know one thing was great was we got to work with especially for john who was the you know showrunner of the series he got to work with actors that he's just always been obsessed with that in all fairness probably wouldn't have been on a big flashy cable series if it wasn't for John. So for example, Roy Kinnear, I mean, a huge stage actor, you know, has played every, I think, uh, practically every uh, Hamlet character there is. 
And, you know, he was the very first person that John wanted, and he was the only person that John wanted to play the creature. There was nobody else. He said, it has to be Rory Kinnear. Um, And the same went for Ava. Like, Ava was John's muse. So, you know, he wrote Vanessa Ives for her. He always had her in mind, even before we actually, you know, were able to get her. Um, It was always that she, because she carries both, like you said, she's, gorgeous and she's even prettier in person i mean she's just stunningly beautiful and kind and and probably one of the sweetest people i've ever met um but she's also someone that just gets really gritty and can go there she can really just let herself go so when she does an episode like the possession episode uh in season one or even the seance episode that i mean she just went for it i've I've never seen such a hardworking actor before. I mean, and, and also, like, she'll be screaming and yelling and pretending like she's possessed by the devil, and the minute they call cut, she's got a big smile on her face and is the nicest person. And, like, you know, you would be intimidated to sort of approach her, but she was so approachable and so warm and wonderful. Um, and everybody, you know, Billy Piper, who has an amazing career in the U.K., but a lot of people haven't weren't very familiar with her in the U.S., and... You know, I mean, that that was sort of, and Tim Dalton, I mean, I was, I was such a crazy Tim Dalton fan, because I grew up, I'm a comic book fan, I'm a sci-fi and horror fan, I, obviously I loved The Rocketeer, and I loved Flash Gordon, so to actually get to work with someone that I sort of grew up watching um, was such a treat, and he, he actually was an amazing guy, like, I mean, he's one of the funniest men I've ever worked with, so... Um, and yeah, we were, we ha- we were so blessed to have such an incredible cast for sure. There was one, I think it was season two where, uh, Vanessa is in her room and she's kneeling on the floor concentrating and there are witches around her mm-hmm. in the dark and they get real close to her. That creeped me out. <laughs> that was great, scary stuff. <laughs> Even though I know they're there, it just uh-huh. they were, so, and she knows they're there in her mind, but they are just so close. You could feel the breath on your neck. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. No, I mean that was it was very creepy, and the idea that like the monster is right around there and and surrounding you, yet they're not attacking. You know, they're just sort of breathing and getting closer. Oh, absolutely, it was super creepy. Plus, these women were pretty much like you know practically naked in their sort of all their prosthetics that would take like eight hours to put on. Um, you know, the minute they walked on set, you just already got that sort of creepy vibe. Well, the costuming and the makeup and the special effects and the CGI, none of it looked odd or out of place. I, the use of it for buildings and background, it, it just really set that tone. You were in a certain place when you watched the show. Uh-huh. You were in yeah. a certain world immediately when the show started. Yep. Uh, uh, I mean, God, we couldn't have had the better, the best of the best, literally. I mean, with Jonathan McKinstry, who was our production designer, Nick Dudman, who came off of Harry Potter and did all the makeup prosthetics, to Mr. X, which is the, the you know, VFX designers and came in. And, you know, like you said, they, they would, we would be in a very sort of relatively small set and you'd see the green screen and you're just like, okay, let's hope this works. And then, you know, they would show us sort of what their vision for it was. And then it truly came to life. But I have to say, you know, what everyone always would come back to me with is the fact that, you know, having someone like John Logan who had a vision for it and could and could explain it in such a way, it always helps to have that one person that sort of can guide the way. And he was he's such a visionary when it comes to even in his descriptions and his scripts, you know, you, you can already you can already see it as you're sort of reading off the page. Um, and, and so he always had very specific ideas. And so having sort of going off of one person's vision, but labbing, allowing everyone to collaborate and to put in their own input. Um, and people on the crew just loved the show so much that they were, they wanted to make it as best as they could. So everyone, I mean, it was literally everyone was bringing their A game on this show. I, I mean, there was not one person that I could say that was slacking off in any way from the costume designs that were all, you know, handmade. We had this massive costume department 
and Gabrielle Pascucci, who's an Oscar winner and, and an Emmy winner, she was, you know, she was the head costume designer and she had, you know, her, she's Italian and had her whole Italian crew come in and, and they literally hand stitched every single piece of costume. And so, and, it, and the colors come off and it, 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 you know, it's, it's such a vibrant show for being so dark, um, uh, you know, for being such a darkly set show. There was so much put into it and so much attention to details. A wonderful series. And then came the final episode. And John had planned this all along. Um, the Blessed Dark was the final one. But fans didn't know that. Uh, I knew it when I started watching the series because I had seen the buzz about it. Mm-hmm. What was the fan reaction like that you received? Did you get any direct oh, reaction yeah. sent to you? Or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I probably got the most because I was I was the one that was very active on Twitter. So I would sort of tweet for the show um, and I would, you know, I, I loved hearing from the fans. I loved interacting with the fans because, you know, the, the, a show like this, it, you know, what's great about a show like this is that it gets I mean, these fans are just so into it and so engaged and they know everything and and they you know they love certain characters and they just and it, these characters speak to them on a on a level that maybe other shows don't quite do the same thing so the, you know we have these huge fans and a great fan following so of course everyone was shocked when the end comes up and the card comes up at the you know at the final uh, the final scene and you know people were really upset i have to say i got some i got some nasty tweets you know i got some people not very happy about it and in a way i appreciate it because that means they truly love the show and and i love the fact that they were they were so moved by it that they had to reach out granted they said some mean things but whatever that's that's the nature of television and 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 a, a show like this um, but then there was a lot of others that just were, you know, felt like, you know, sometimes shows can go on too long and sometimes shows can sort of go off in different directions. And the fact that we stayed true to the tone of the show and the story and, and everything, I think the fans appreciated that um, for sure. You're going to pick up the pen, the stylus, because there's still plenty of flesh left on the bone to tell us more stories about Penny Dreadful. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's what's great about the series um, is the fact that, you know, there are, these characters were are so rich and have such interesting lives that, you know, you can't help but want to sort of continue telling their stories. Um, and the fact that Titan approached us to do a comic book uh, was, it sort of was a no-brainer because it just, it made sense, one, because we felt a lot of fans are, into comics and read comics and that sort of thing. Um, plus, we could tell, you know, we could continue the story in a way that um, I feel plays true to the series, but also can go off and, and tell its own stories and have its own, create its own world um, that that sort of exists within the show, but also can sort of branch off and go in many different directions. Now, you work very closely with John, so has he said anything about you picking up the pen to carry on the series? What oh, he, he was <laughs> he was so supportive. He said no one else but me. So <laughs> I kind of didn't have a choice. <laughs> no, I mean, well, it was what happened was in season two we were approached uh, when we were first starting season two, Titan Comics. Titan had done a, a beautiful book for us um, for the first season, sort of a behind the scenes book going through the characters and what a, you know production design and all of that and so we had such a great experience with them and they were so supportive of the show and they they were fans themselves so when they approached us um in season two john wasn't ready to sort of do a companion piece and wanted to kind of keep with where we were with the series so we sort of said no at the time, um, even though I kept going like, oh, my God, I would love to do a comic. Let's do it. Because uh, I was a comic book guy. I went to comic books, at, you know, when I went to store the comic book store like every Tuesday when I was a kid and would, you know, get armfuls of comics and take them home and read them quickly and then beg my mom to take me back. Um, so, you know, when that the idea of it really intrigued me. And so when uh, when season two came around and Titan was still very interested um, and, you know, and I was being a bit pestering. The John's like, absolutely, we should do something. 
Um, but he, you know, he's, he pretty much entrusted me with, uh, continuing the story just because I was very involved from the very beginning. Um, and so, yeah, but it's, it's, you know, I was intimidated at first. I, you know, once it officially was starting to happen, I got really scared. Cause I'm like, nah, you know, I can't, I don't write like John Logan. I'm not a, I, you know, there's no way, but the more, the co- more confidence he instilled in me and the more I felt like, you know, I could continue with these stories because I love these characters just as much as he did. And, and, you know, I, I wanted to see these stories go on. Um, you know, I finally felt the, the confidence to, uh, to take, to take it on. And he's been nothing but supportive, which is, which has been great for me. And your first writing, you actually collaborated with other writers to do a prequel for the series that just came out in trade last month. Yes, so we had, so in the first two seasons, John wrote all the episodes. By season three, we decided to bring on um, a couple of writers just to kind of help, you know, with the burden of the so many scripts and so little time. And so we brought on two great writers um, that worked with us creatively on, on sort of arcing out and breaking story for the third season. They wrote a few of the episodes, and we became very close uh, in just the, the amount of time that we worked together. So we, when we first were approached by Titan, John was like, great, but only if it's sort of a prequel. And so we decided to work together. So myself, Christy Wilson Cairns, and Andrew Hinderaker, who's our, who's, who were the two other writers, we sort of came up with the concept of sort of the prequel, um, which is, are the first set of comics that came out um, that sort of tells, leads up to where we begin the, the first season of Penny Dreadful. Um, so that was a whole lot of fun. It was very collaborative and we had a great time doing it. But then of course, you know, when things, life happens and, and Andrew went on to write on a couple of new series and Christie's writing a couple of films. And I mean, that, you know, their careers are blowing up and, um, you know, my job mainly is I develop television. I run a production company here in Los Angeles and so I, you know, I don't have the burden of having to write scripts every day. And so when, uh, when Titan said, look, we want to do more, um, I had such a great experience writing and working with them that uh, it was just kind of like, it was a no brainer. And plus, I just, I missed the show. You know, I'm a fan, like, I'm just as much of a fan of Penny Dreadful as all the others are. And so I was wanting to see the story continue. And so uh, it, it sort of was a, a, a easy decision to continue the story. I was really happy to see the trade when it came out because I just started watching the series maybe like for a week. Maybe it was like seven episodes in. I'm like, oh, it's a prequel. I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm going to buy it right now. So um, that was like perfect timing. And now with the new series, um, is everything on the table? Any dangling plot threads that are left unresolved, can you go back and address them? Absolutely. That's the most fun part of this. One little teaser, because it's been out there within, you know, when they announced the new, uh, these new comics, one of the sort of mythologies that we explored sort of mainly in season one, and it kind of a bit tapered off over the course of season two and three, was the Egypt, ancient Egyptian mythology. Um, if you remember in season one, one of the vampires that they kill has these hieroglyphics sort of tattooed on its body. And we talk a lot about Amunet and Amun-Ra, who are these sort of two characters that, you know, if brought together could bring down, you know, the end of days and, and you know, all light would end and the world would, would turn into darkness and the hidden ones would emerge and rule. So, you know, we created this mythology that sort of began in this ancient Egyptian sort of um, time period. But, and, and in a way, that was always our little nod to the mummy. Uh, John and I were big mummy fans, um, the original mummy, of course. And so we always wanted to sort of circle back with that. And, you know, what's great about the mummy is that it, it, it deals with the same sort of uh, it, it deals with the same sort of story arcs that uh, that our show was dealing with. You know, it's a monster that returns from the dead, and it's he's seeking vengeance, but deep down it's because of his, you know, lost love and all of those things that are sort of similar tropes to uh, to areas that we explore in in the series. So 
we always sort of talked about and joked about, oh, one time maybe we'll go to ancient, ancient Egypt and maybe we'll explore the mummy, but we never had an opportunity to uh, in series. So the minute we, I knew the comic book was going to happen, I, I'm like, we got it. I got to do the mummy. Like, I've got to at least bring that sort of story. Plus, I think a lot of people had questions like, you know, why did those vampires have the tattoos, uh, the Egyptian hieroglyphics on them? And, you know, what what does that have to do with the, the overall big created legend that we have about, you know, Dracula and Lucifer being brothers and separated and their sort of their battles for Vanessa and to take over the world kind of thing. Um, so it was fun to sort of bridge that gap and bring in and help tie up some of those loose ends that people had a lot of questions about. Now, I was really thrilled to see that in the comic, which honestly... I did not pre-order because I wasn't watching the series yet. And then when I started to watch it, I jumped on. And when Wednesday came, and this was completely my fault, there wasn't an issue for me. And I was like, oh, man, I want to read this now. And in fact, my wife, and she's kind of like Mrs. Columbo. I mention her, but you never see her or hear about her. Uh (laughs) But she's like, you know, and she's not a comic book reader. She says, I want to read that when you get it. I said, okay, no problem. So I had to, I, I downloaded it. Like I ordered it digitally first. Oh, cool. Through my comic book shop's portal. So I, they do get credit for it. And I also mm-hmm. ordered the print copy, which will be coming in for me. But I wanted to read it like right away. I couldn't wait. And that was yeah. the first book I read <laughs> that day <laughs> on New Comic Book Day. And uh, to see that ancient Egyptian piece in there, I was thrilled. Because yeah. one of my favorite Hammer Horror films is The Mummy. Just yep. because of the Egyptology and the, the set was just amazing. And they're on a tight budget, but they made it look so good. And mm-hmm. I, of course, love the original Hammer ones. It, just those first few seconds of uh, film where you see Boris Karloff as the mummy become animated. Yeah. It's just yeah. some of the most incredible footage. It's iconic. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. And, you know, that's why I'm like, oh, I have to tie this in because I love, I love all that stuff. And I was fascinated by the whole Egyptology and, uh, you know, the, the thing that Fernand Lyle was an Egyptologist and that, you know, Catriona Hardigan was, uh, you know, she dealt in death and, and all of that. So, to you know, I'm, I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan, you know, so, so to actually get to explore that a little bit was, was such a treat and so much fun. And it was great to see so many characters back in this story. We'll see a lot of the ones from the original series. Sir Malcolm Murray's there. Uh, Ethan Chandler, we open with him. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil too much. Uh, but the artwork, too, grabbed me. It's very dark but realistic. Um, it's just a style that I really gravitate towards. Did you have any input into the artist chosen, or was this something that Titan recommended? Yeah, you know, Titan's such a great collaborative company. And so when, when we were green to move forward with this new these new comics, you know, they had presented a couple of, of potential artists. Jesus uh, Hervas. Once I saw Jesus's work, I was like, and I know he's come out of, like, done Marvel stuff at times. I'm like, done. That, yes, I agree. So we, uh, we sort of picked him together um, because I thought his artwork was just, it, it felt more naturalistic and, and realistic. So that's why uh, we went with him. And so what's the process been like working with him? How are you sending him the scripts? Are you guys emailing back and forth? Um, are you able to communicate? Uh, or do you have um, like a translator in between? Because I know some people that work with artists, like they're from Brazil, they have an agent they go through to send everything. So, I, I mean, that's a great question. I, I mainly go through this, the, the publisher and the, the so I, uh, what I do is, you know, it's, it's interesting writing the scripts. Um, you know, everyone asks like, what, what are the scripts for a comic book look like? And, and, you know, they're not like a typical, they're not like a film script. They're not, you know, they're not like a, a novel in any way. So, so basically like each, I, I try to, I describe what each page is going to be. So, uh, you know, so one page will say, you know, panel one, and then I'll describe exactly kind of how I see the image on that one panel. Um, you know, I even describe like if it's an overhead shot or if it's over someone's shoulder or if it's a really tight shot of someone's eyes. Like I try to be as descriptive as possible to help to help Jesus or to whom who's ever um, um, doing the the uh, 
the work, I tried to be as descriptive as possible. And then underneath the d description, I then do the dialogue and how the dialogue should flow. Um, and that's like, and then and so every page has at least, you know, we try to only do six panels per page. Um, but it depends on the story. Sometimes there's just one, you know, it's always fun to just do, you know, one panel, one whole page can really sell an interesting moment. Um, and I just did, I, I'm turning in the fourth script, uh, hopefully tomorrow. And there's one page that I'm just like so excited about and, and it's literally just one image. But, um, so yeah, so I try to be as descriptive as possible. And then what happens is they'll send me all the sort of the pencil drawings before any of the actual ink gets put in. Um, and so if I have any thoughts or notes, I, you know, might give him, I've rarely had him because he is so amazing and he's so talented. Um, but we work through, you know, work through the publisher. This first arc of the awakening, it's four issues. Yes. Okay. Do you plan yes. this to be, or do you hope it's going to be an ongoing series or will you do it like four issues for one particular arc and then see where uh, we go from there? Yeah, it's it's designed to sort of keep going after the four, for sure. Yeah, there's definitely a cliffhanger in the fourth to keep it uh, to keep everyone engaged. I work in TV. I know what it's like to keep audiences engaged, and you've got to have a good cliffhanger to keep them wanting more. Well, there's an audience out there hungry for this. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yes, uh, please keep keep us keep us fed. Keep bringing us more stuff. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you a few other questions. Um, Related to your interests, since what we've talked about, I'm like, well, I like those things too. And I, I have a set of questions I usually ask all my guests. But before I get to those, since you are a fan of comics and of horror movies, I have a few other questions. You mentioned being at the comic shop every day on Tuesday. What were some of the books that you read? What were some of the ones that you gravitated to first? Well, I was definitely a DC guy. So, I mean, I was a big Batman fan. I loved, especially like the Dark Knight collections. I was a really, I loved Batman. So, so if, and as I tended to go for Batman or Superman. Those were sort of my two go-tos. But then I love these sort of other books. Like there was a series that I was obsessed with. Um, people probably never even heard of it, but it was called ElfQuest. And it was great and it was amazing. And it was about, you know, so very, that was very much in the fantasy realm, which I was also very interested in as a kid. That was um, uh, Richard and Wendy Peeney? Yes, exactly. So um, th that was my favorite, 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 favorite comic book series of all time. And I did not look um, that up, folks. That's off the that's top of my head. <laughs> it is, and I'm so <laughs> impressed. I mean, like most people don't even know what that is, so it's so nice to talk to someone who understands. Um, but I'll tell you, also, I was, uh, I remember when I was younger, and this just, uh, you know, I was, when I, I remember being like, you know, in typical in like grade school, you get kind of get put into the low, the, the reading groups. This is what they did back then. They don't do this anymore, really, I don't think. But basically, I was put into the, the, the C group, which was basically the lowest, the slowest reading group uh, in my class. And I remember really being upset about it because I hated not being in the, you know, the fastest reading group and the the top reading group and so but I wasn't a fan of reading at the time and this was probably when I was little like you know total grade school and uh, my mom thought you know if I wasn't engaged in reading books she got me comic books and that's kind of what really first got me excited to become a huge avid reader was I started reading comics and then I fell in love with that and then I got into books and then Within a couple of years, I moved into the top reading group, uh, you know, and I became, I was an English major in college. So, you know, that's a testament to, to my mom's parenting of using comics to teach me how to read. Um, but so comics has been a huge part of my life. Um, and so I remember reading, I was obsessed with, they had Shakespeare in comic book form. And so I read all the Shakespeare as a kid all the Shakespeare stories uh, and plays I read as in comic book form, um, which was great because it helped me understand the language while also sort of visually seeing the images so I could really grasp what was happening. Um, so yeah, I have my, my comic book collection is so wild and strange and all over the place. Yeah. I've had this same conversation with other creators and um, my listeners have heard this too, is that that's how I started getting heavily into reading was um, I read comic books. I mean, the comic books were read to me when I was very little because uh, I had pictures to look at and I was just yep. a little kid. But then I started reading them myself and I got obsessed with it. And then I moved on to books and I would start reading things like Robert E. Howard's Conan. Mm. I would start reading John Jakes. 
Um, and I would, and then there was a class, I mentioned this on another episode I had in high school and it was my favorite English class. It was imaginative literature and it was, it was Stoker's Dracula. Mm. Um, it was Dorian Gray. It was all of those things. I really like, um, Arthur C. Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. yeah, just all these great, great books. And to me, it wasn't schoolwork anymore. I was having too much fun. Yeah. And part of it was the teacher, when you were done reading the book, he would ask you questions just to make sure you really read the book. Like he would go through and pick things out of the book that were, you know, not just like the, the high level uh, overview of the book, but like things to make sure you really read it. And I'm like, no problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> and yeah, comics are a wonderful entry point into reading more. And I, st- I still love to read them. There's, there's just so, so much variety and diversity in them now. I, I buy all kinds of stuff. I mean, my, my reading, um, it has expanded a great deal of comics. The reading pile keeps getting bigger and bigger in my office. It's terrible. Yeah. Oh, and there's something you said about actually having, I mean, I'm, I'm all about digital, but I, there's something to be said about actually having the physical comic in your hand and to flip through it. That's, I love that. And, and I feel like that, you know, it gets a little lost in the digital world where like, and I think it's just, from my generation, our generations of growing up with the actual physical comic and going to the comic book store, like what that meant to sort of rifle through the comics and look for your favorite ones while also, you know, trying to discover new ones. And what was that image on the cover that, that made you want to pick that up? You know, I think that truly is such a, a, a fascinating and really interesting world. And I sometimes feel like it get, it's get, it gets a little lost in the digital world nowadays. Yeah, I read some digital. I read mostly print, um, mm-hmm. and I read some trades too, because I, I just can't. I can't get everything the week it comes out. But um, I know some books just would not work as well digitally, just the way the pages are laid out, yeah. especially like a splash page across. I want to open the book and see it, you know, mm-hmm. laid out in front of me instead of turning my tablet, you know. And so yeah, some books just aren't really made for that. And then on some other books, it works well if you're doing the uh, panel by panel viewing. It works mm-hmm. fine. But yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. I do like that that tangible part of it. And that's how I started, you know, and I'd, I'd go into the comic book shops and I'd look through the books and the older books would have that nice smell to them of the old books. You know, you can't, mm-hmm. that, that's just like, to me, it's like a steak. It's like, ah, oh, what's that? Mm, old books. And I would just, <laughs> and I, me too, I would just spend hours rifling through boxes, just having yeah. fun trying to discover that one little gem that you need to get into your collection or something you've never seen before. And you're like, what is this? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great it's a great feeling um that's the yeah. bug that bites you when you're, you start liking comics like that yep how about film uh you mentioned the horror films what's your favorite horror film it's interesting i mean i i grew up in the 80s loving everything from nightmare on elm street and freddy krueger and jason and friday the 13th and all of those like great slasher films of of the 80s but i think for me what I truly am drawn to is the psychological ones. So, you know, anything from a, um, Amazing Psycho um, to even like a movie like Silence of the Lambs. And I, I, I know that's sort of in the more of a thriller zone, but I love those those things that make you feel unsettled and make it feel like you're, you're more creeped out uh, than you are sort of getting the scares and the jumps, uh, you know, from whatever pops up on screen. Um, those were what I was always sort of drawn to more, um, you know, the, the, the real life killers, the, the monster among us. I think that's what I find more frightening than, than the actual, like, you know, alien monster or even though great films, love them, huge fan. Um, but I think for me, it's, it's those sort of psychological films, like, like a movie like Psycho, um, that really sort of, uh, works for me on many levels. Yeah, because they could really happen. I mean, it is a real yep. threat, so it it does creep you out. It does get under your skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, my final questions, and these are ones I ask all my guests now. These are just kind of fun questions. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? <laughs> what do I like besides writing? Because I have to do it early in the morning because I do have a, a day job. Um, you know, for me, I'm I'm a I exercise a lot. So I love to run. I'm a big avid runner. I do a lot of, um, yeah, I haven't done a marathon in a while, but I'll do sort of fun runs and those sorts of things. So I'm a pretty much like an outdoorsy person. So hiking, any opportunity to get outside, I do. Um, so, so, and I'm very, I try to be as active as possible. Very good. That's one of my 
activities is running when I can. And I love to hike. You know, I like to go to um, Shenandoah. I like to go to the Southwest, you know, mm -hmm. Death Valley. I just love to get out and hike. Just it's, yeah. I like that peace and solitude. I like to get out there in the trail before anybody else is around. It's nice to see people. It's nice to say, hey, how you doing? But I just like that quiet yep. and just listening to the nature around you and what's going on in the forest when you're in the woods. Yeah. And then in the desert when you're not hearing anything. Uh, it's yeah. something else. Uh, I love. I do love the desert. I'm such a fan of the desert. So yeah, absolutely. What what places have you been in the desert? Where have you traveled? Um, I mean, I've been. Luckily, I've been all over. But uh, I have. My grandparents lived in. They moved from California to Arizona. So and they lived sort of in the Mojave Desert area. So you know, not too far off from the Colorado River. But uh, so I did a lot of. I've done a lot of sort of exploring around the desert there. Um, and then yeah, actually for Penny Dreadful, we filmed, uh, our final season, all of the Ethan in the, in the West, um, we filmed in Spain in sort of, uh, in a city called Almeria or just outside Almeria, which is all desert. Um, and it was the most fun cause you're just literally just, I, I just, there's something about the desert. I think it's one, it's so beautiful and so breathtaking, but you said, like you said, it's, it's just the, the quiet of it all and the sort of solitude of it. And, uh, I just, I find it just so fascinating. If you were on an Island, stuck on an Island, what is the print book or it could be a set of books if they're part of a series that you would want to have on that Island with you? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I have to think for a moment. I such a, I do love reading a lot. Um, I would think, I would think it would have to be like, either I'm a huge Great Gatsby fan, so it, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald. I I could read that book. I I can't tell you the amount of times that I've read that book over and over again. Um, so I think that would be for sure one of them. Um. And also, I'm a big, I sound like such, I, I do like nor, regular sort of modern day books, but I'm a big Charles Dickens fan. Um, so that I would uh, probably take either, you know, I would think maybe uh, Great Expectations. Um, and then I, I'm also, you know, in my genre, I love a good Stephen King novel. So I can't turn back uh, one of those as well. Okay. Did you see um, The Legend of Zelda on Amazon? No, I haven't. Uh, it's been one of those things I was very interested in seeing. I just, I haven't, uh, I hadn't seen it yet. But uh, is it? Have you watched it? Is I it, did. Is it yeah, good? I, I really liked it. It was very good. He's I, such I a, a great little... character. Yes. You know, how, yeah. How could you not? No, I think you would like it. When it was over, I was like, I want more. <laughs> oh really? All right, I'll have to tune in. And a final question: Your beverage of choice. It doesn't have to be spirits. If you don't drink spirits, it could be coffee or tea. Uh, I love a good margarita. Can't pass one of those up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good choice. Um, yeah. I, I tend to like red wine. I do like beer IPAs. Um, mm -hmm. when I'm watching television tends to be, uh, like a Cabernet. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. the, the only mixed drink I've really ever enjoyed, um, is the mojito. And, um, when we took a trip to Puerto Rico, San Juan, I had to have the mojito. And uh, yeah, I, we were at the uh, the hotel bar, and they're like, "Oh, we're sorry, we're out of fresh mint." I'm like, mm -hmm. "What? You're out of fresh mint? <laughs> I'm in San Juan. I'm in a five star hotel. I want fresh mint." <laughs> exactly. You're like, I'm in Puerto Rico. Come on, come on, man. Uh, <laughs> well, Chris, it's been a lot of fun. Anything else you want to share about Penny Dreadful: The Awakening? Yeah, I just. I, I want the fans to know, like, I, I, as I probably stated numerous times over the course of our conversation here, you know, this is it's coming from someone who is a fan of the show. And I hope I get to answer questions that have been left unanswered from the series. I hope I get to, to sort of live up to what the fans, because I do pay attention to what the fans are interested in and what they're wanting to see. And I try to, in my own creative way, sort of give them, you know, certain things things that they're looking for. Um, but, you know, I think we're going to explore all new different relationships. We're going to meet some new characters um, and we're going to, uh, to explore some, some new worlds that we haven't seen and weren't able to see in the series. So I, I just, I hope the fans enjoy it because I'm enjoying, you know, riding it and I, I get to play in this world again. And that's what's so much fun. 
Well, I can tell the fans who've been waiting for something like this that I just read it yesterday. I just finished watching the series like last week. It's all fresh in my mind. And when I closed the book, or I closed my tablet, I should say, <laughs> I was like, yes. You know, that, oh. that's what I wanted. That's, it did not disappoint. Oh, well, that's great to hear. Thank so you. I, I think fans will be very pleased with what they read. So I urge them, if you haven't picked it up or your shop ran out, go order now before they're all gone. Chris, thank you so much. It's been a, a great conversation. Oh, I just truly enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Well, that was a great conversation with Chris King. I really enjoyed that. I want to thank him for being on the show, and I hope you enjoy getting all those inside tips about Penny Dreadful, how this series is going to continue on in Titan Comics, Penny Dreadful, The Awakening. And I want to thank my executive co-producer, the Mrs. Columbo of this series, my lovely wife, Mrs. Calloway. She keeps the kids quiet so I can get the recordings done and the editing done, and that is a huge help to me so that I can bring you these episodes and these conversations with comic book writers and creators. And I know this is one she is interested in listening to, so thank you, dear. I just came back from the Greater Philadelphia Comic Con and made some connections there, so I have some great interviews coming up in the forthcoming weeks you will not want to miss. If you want to follow me and find out who are those creators that are going to be coming up on the show, you can follow me at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and at Creator Talks Pod on Twitter. Also, there's my website where I post my blog, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. And I'll be tweeting and putting those on Facebook when I have blogs come out so you can find out who is coming up on the show. So, questions and comments you can send through my website, creatortalks.com. There's an email there. And you can also do it through social media. And if you have some time, please stop on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher and let me know what you think about the show. Leave a review. Positive or negative, feedback is appreciated. Constructive criticism is always welcome. That wraps up this week's episode. More to come soon in the days ahead, especially this Thursday, the day we normally have our show. So... I'm Christopher Calloway. Thank you for listening. This has been Creator Talks. Until next time.